So if you guys are sitting now and have your Bibles, if you want to open up, we're going to be in Mark 12, 13 to 34 specifically. All right, so um, as we get going today, my, my wife has the spiritual gift of encouragement, and one of uh, the most common things she's been saying to me lately is, bro, you look exhausted, um, because I'm exhausted. And Blake and I were talking this week, um, just life has been heavy. Um, as you guys know, spring training is upon us. My life's about to go out of control. Um, this week has been heavy. Um, so I just want us, as we, as we start to look into... Mark here, I want us to take a second um, and just sit and breathe. Um, if you guys want to have the passage in front of you, um, I'm going to give you guys about 30 seconds just to, to reframe our hearts and our minds and get us in a posture of, of hearing what the Lord has for us here in Mark. So take a second. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for waking us up, giving us new breath, giving us life. Um, thanks that your mercies are new every morning. Um, thanks that we have a chance to, to come and, and step away from the insanity of life for, for a little bit here on Sunday morning and just hear what you have for us. Um, I pray as we, as we unpack your word this morning that it shapes the way that we think, it shapes the way that we live, that it impacts our vertical and our horizontal. Um, thanks ultimately for Christ, for his work on the cross and life we have through his shed blood. Amen. Mark 12, 13 to 34 goes like this. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, it is not this, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but God of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So for you guys who are visiting with us this morning, we have been walking passage by passage through the book of Mark. Um, and, and for me, as, as a Northeasterner, as well as having a coaching background, I love the way that Mark lines out his gospel because he does not mince words. Mark takes us very directly, point by point by point, through the story of Jesus' life, ultimately leading to his death and resurrection, because he was writing to a group of people that were under persecution, that did not know how much time they had left as they're sitting in Rome under the persecution of Nero, not knowing whether they were going to live or die day to day. Mark didn't have the opportunity to mince words. And so as, as we look here, and as we start to get through this, my, my northeastern heart, and you guys are from the northeast, so maybe you'll get this. There's a couple northeasterners here. I love this because I get to see confrontational Jesus. Like my spiritual gift as a northeasterner is being very comfortable in confrontation. We're really good at that. And I think that there's a reason that Blake gave me this passage because I don't think Oklahomians, is that what you guys are called? Oklahomans, are you guys as comfortable with conflict as we are? Yeah, you don't want to talk about it. All right. So as we go through this passage, I love this because we get to see confrontational Jesus, right? And as we unpack this, I think that if there's one word that sticks out to you in terms of what Jesus's primary confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders was, what is the one word that you guys would think of? I'm playing guess what I'm thinking. It's like one of my favorite games. It starts with an H. Thank you. Hypocrisy, right? What Jesus is doing is attacking hypocrisy. So what is hypocrisy? You can yell it out. I don't care. What does hypocrisy mean? Saying one thing and doing another, or believing one thing and doing another, right? And as we go into this passage, we're going to see how Jesus specifically attacks this. But as I was studying it and unpacking this for myself, it brought me back to really my moment of coming to to know and follow Jesus. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, I don't have a specific moment in my life that I can look back on and say, this is when I moved from death to life, or this is when God took my heart of of stone and gave me a heart of flesh. It It was a process. Right? I, I grew up in and around the church. I grew up went, going to Catholic high school. I, I knew the words to say. But at 18, I was playing summer ball with, uh, in, in the Northeast in between my senior year of high school, freshman year of college. And I started to drive to games with a guy named Nick Sissio. Nick was a couple years older than me. He was back in the Northeast for the summer. Um, I think he was playing at Central Florida or something like that. And so we just started driving to games together to, to save on gas money. And as we were driving, he would just ask me questions about my life what I believed, why I believed it. And I could give him the answers, right? But I started to realize pretty quickly over the course of that process that I did not want Nick to see the way that I actually lived my life. Because I realized there was a disconnect between these two things, right? Because what I was doing was living out my hypocrisy. And it was ultimately because of my hypocrisy that the Lord drew me to himself. Because I saw if what I say with my lips is true, then everything in my life has to be devoted to that one thing. Because if it's not, then it doesn't make any sense, right? If Jesus did what the Bible tells us he did, and yet I'm going to go say one thing and live the opposite, it doesn't make any sense. It's irrational. If that's true, everything in me has to be devoted to that. So as we start to unpack this passage, we have to look immediately before in this, and we see the parable of the tenants. Do you guys remember the parable of the tenants? And specifically, the last thing that's said 
in that passage before we get into verse 13 is that the Jewish religious leaders, right, the Pharisees and the scribes, they noticed that Jesus was saying this parable directly against them. So they sought to kill him. And so we get into verse 13, and we get the first of our confrontational Jesus interactions, right? And so they said, and we'll, we'll go through this again, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, this is, is interesting right off the bat that you have these two groups of people that are coming to attack Jesus. Because if we know anything about the Pharisees, these were the Jewish religious leaders of the day, right? Members of the Sanhedrin. They, they were the pinnacle of Jewish society, right? Who ultimately, as Jews, despised Rome. And the Herodians are loyal to Rome and loyal to King Herod, who is ultimately over the Jews. And so it's interesting that these two groups of people who should be hating each other are going after Jesus in one unified conflict. And the reason for this is because they are trying to track him, trap him both politically as well as theologically. So as they come up to him, probably teaching in this throng of people, they start with this flowery language that we see is, is so contrary to where their hearts actually is. They say, teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Knowing full well what paying taxes to Caesar meant. So Jesus has them bring a denarius, and that's basically what amounts to a, a day's wage. And on this denarius, you had a picture, a picture of Caesar, and inscribed in the coin underneath is God Augustus Caesar. It's a claim of divinity. Right? And so what the Jews are looking at Jesus and they're saying, if he's paying taxes with this coin, it's blasphemy. He's declaring that Caesar is God. Right? And if he says, don't pay your taxes to Rome, they know the Herodians are going to run and go find Roman centurions and haul him off because he's mounting insurrection against Rome. They look at it and they say, we've got the perfect plan in place to trap Jesus exactly where he is. And what does Jesus say? He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. What is he rendering to Caesar? What Jesus is saying is if Caesar is providing for the temple, right? if Caesar is providing the social services that you receive in Rome, if Caesar is paying the centurions that you see guarding this, if Caesar wants his money, give Caesar his money. Who cares? But what you don't give Caesar is you don't ascribe divinity to him. Give to God what is God's in his divinity and give to Caesar what Caesar wants. If Caesar wants his money, pay him but give to God what God truly desires. Because just like the Herodians, we can do the same thing here in 21st century America, right? How quickly can we put our hope in politics to save us? How quickly can we say, I'm giving to Caesar what Caesars do because I expect that Caesar is going to save me. That's what the Herodians thought. They thought Caesar was going to save them from what they need saving from, physical protection. Rome was going to protect me. Right? And what Jesus is saying is, Caesar doesn't save you. So ascribe to God what's truly God's. Ascribe divinity to the one who is divine. Because if we're putting our hope in Caesar, we're putting our hope in nothing. If we're putting our hope in God, he is the one that ultimately deserves all honor and respect and all ascribing of divinity. What God is due is true worship. Right? And what is true worship? It's when we give everything that we are to him. And Paul tells us in Romans 12 exactly what God desires of us. 
I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's what God desires of us. That is what we are to ascribe to him because Caesar is not God, but the king of the universe is. So then he finishes off this interaction with the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they have nothing to say to him. And so up steps the Sadducees, and they came to him with this absurd hypothetical, right? Here is a woman who has been married to seven different brothers, right? Ultimately not bearing children through any of them. So in the resurrection, who's, whose wife is she, right? And so they're looking at this because the Sadducees are the legalistic group of the Jewish ruling council. The Sadducees held to the Pentateuch. Any of you guys Bible trivia question? What's the Pentateuch? First five books, First five books of the Bible. You almost had it, Hattie, sorry. Okay, yeah. So they, they held to the Pentateuch, right? And then they were a little bit skeptical about the rest of the Torah, right? But they looked at the Pentateuch, these first five books, the books of Moses, and they said, this is ultimately where we are going to land, right? And the Sadducees were probably the predominant group of people within the Sanhedrin. So they were kind of running the show. And so they come to Jesus because they don't believe in the resurrection, right? They don't believe that, that anything happens after death because as they looked at the first five books of the Torah, they didn't see resurrection there. Now, we can look at the prophets and we can look at many other places in Scripture and, and really challenge this claim. But what they said is ultimate victory is found in death because that's the end. There's nothing else. And so they come with this crazy hypothetical situation to Jesus. And what Jesus says to them is my favorite Northeastern confrontation. Is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? He's like, bro, you guys have no idea what you're talking about, right? As you say that ultimate victory is found in death, I'm the one who's already beat it twice. I've already raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. She had, death had nothing on her. I've already raised Lazarus from the dead. Death had nothing on him. And I'm about to go a week later, and I'm going to go conquer death once and for all for all of us. And so you don't know the scriptures. You don't even know what you're talking about. And you also don't know what the power of God is. Because the power of God is standing right in front of you, looking you eye to eye, and yet you're so locked into this that you can't see what's blatantly in front of you. And just to, to add insult to injury, he takes him right back to Moses, right? And what does he say? Boop, 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 boop. Uh. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So as I was studying for this, there was a, a quote from a commentary I was reading that I just thought was interesting that helps us unpack what Jesus is really saying in that interaction. So, Blake, could you pull that up? You don't have it. Okay, I'm going to read it to you then. Okay. It says, The argument is better understood as a reflection on the character of the covenant God whom Moses encountered, a God who through his name I am, is revealed as the living God, the ever-present helper and deliverer of his people. If such a God chooses to be identified by the names of his long-dead servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with whom his covenant was made and with whom he committed himself to protect, they cannot simply be dead and forgotten. What Jesus is saying is, if God was only God of the dead, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it would have been long since forgotten. We wouldn't be using that name because they're dead and gone. But if, in fact, God is the God of the living, that's why we ascribe the I am to the God of those people. Because there's hope after death. 
Just as I am is the living and active triune God who is, who is protecting Israel throughout all of their history, right? He's, he's continually protecting even in life after death. He points them straight back to Moses and says, the book that you ascribe everything to is telling you exactly what I'm telling you. And yet you don't see the power of God that's standing right in front of you that has ultimate victory over death. The grave has nothing on Jesus. And finally, we get a juxtaposition. And, and thankfully, we get to this point at the end of this passage because now we get this one lonely scribe who comes up in the midst of this interaction where it's probably a fairly contentious situation, right? And this one scribe comes up and he heard them disputing with one another. And he says, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Interesting that he takes the scribe right back to Deuteronomy. He takes him to the Shema. He puts right in front of the Jewish religious leaders their own text. And he says, that's the most important. But what is he saying inside of that? The scribe tells him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. The scribe starts with his theology. He says, your theology is on point. He is one, right? The God of the Bible is the same God that we're talking about right now. The God of the Torah is the same God that you're espousing to us right now. You're right in your theology, right? And then he keeps going. He, there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is so much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This one lonely scribe is telling to Jesus, I recognize in the midst of this whole system that we have built here, what you're looking for, what God is looking for, what true worship is, is so much more than what we're doing. As we're sitting here and we're arguing through the Torah, right, and these crazy hypothetical situations or whether we should pay Caesar what Caesars do, there's so much more here. It's so much more than the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the legalism that we're living under. And Jesus saw that he answered wisely, and he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Any of you guys ever heard of A.W. Tozer? He's a famous theologian. So A.W. Tozer said, uh, maybe if I can find it, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why does he say that? Because our theology impacts our practice. Right? And what we call this in, in theological terminology is orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Right? Our theology impacts the way we carry it out day in and day out. And this is what Jesus is saying to this one lonely scribe. God is one. He is the triune God. He is the one who has victory over death. He is the one who's conquered the grave. God is who God is. And because of that, go love your neighbor as yourself. Because of that, every action you take in the present is a direct reflection of what you believe. Because what we believe in the vertical impacts the way we carry it out in the horizontal. What we believe about God directly impacts the way we live out family. 
directly impacts the way we live out marriage. It directly impacts the way that we parent. It directly impacts the way that we do community. It directly impacts your relationships in the clubhouse. It directly impacts everything that we do in life because what we believe about God is the ultimate driver to what we do with our lives. Just like me at 18 sitting with Nick Sissio in a car driving to some podunk place playing baseball, we, I realized in that moment that what I believed about God put into practice is where this thing comes together. This orthodoxy, what we believe, impacts the day-to-day reality of how we walk it out. And that's what Jesus is saying to this scribe, that we're not going to sit in arguments about politics or whether I should pay Caesar. We're not going to sit in arguments about theology of the resurrection. I'm going to point out that you're missing the boat in both of those things because I see your hypocrisy and I see the fact that what you're saying with your lips is not impacting the way that you live. Now I'm going to take this one lonely scribe and I'm going to show him what it's actually supposed to be about. So how do we walk away from a text like this? How do we walk away from what Jesus is telling us here in Mark 12? And there's three things specifically that I just want you guys to walk out with today. Number one, going back to our first confrontation, is where are you placing your hope? Where are you placing your hope? Are you placing your hope in Caesar or are you placing your hope in the king of the universe? Right? And Caesar doesn't have to be Caesar. Caesar can be anything else that's not the king of the universe. Right? Are you placing your hope in your marriage? Are you placing your hope in your career? Are you placing your hope in your family? Are you placing your hope in your kids? Whatever it happens to be, are you placing your hope in your bank account? That's all Caesar. Right? Because those things don't save you. Those things will not save you from anything. So where is your hope ultimately being placed? And each one of us, we have to come to that realization. Right? Because so easily and so quickly, we can fall away from keeping our eyes focused on the author of tr- who truly is our hope and find it in the things of this world. That as we get to the end of it, we realize none of these things satisfy and none of these things will save. But it happens like that. And if we're not on guard with the status of our own hearts, we can so quickly fall into that. Number two, do you believe in the power of God? Just like the Sadducees didn't believe in the power of God to beat death, do we believe in the power of God to beat our sin? Do we believe that we follow a king who has ultimate victory and authority that actually impacts the way that we live? Or are we trying to white-knuckle our faith day in and day out? And I don't know where each one of you guys are at, but the reality is it's so quick for me to try to, to, try to grab hold and control of my own salvation or my own sanctification. Right? It's so easy for me to think, if I just do enough, I can do this myself. Just like we can never beat death, we don't have power in and of ourselves over our sin. We don't. But we follow the king of the universe that's already given us victory. Right? Do we believe truly that there is power in the God that we follow? And finally, number three, sanctification, the process of looking more and more like Jesus is seeing the vertical and the horizontal come together. As we evaluate our own lives, as we look internally at the things that are coming out of us, can we say that our relationship with God, our walking in communion with him, our consistent pursuit of the king of the universe is coming out in the way we live our lives? This is exactly why Paul tells us about the fruit of the Spirit. Right? And Eli corrected me when I said this in the incorrect order last week. But love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Right or wrong? I flipped it. Ah, oh, man, I flipped it. All right, I trust you. 
Okay, but the reality is as we look at our own hearts, if those things are not the things that are coming out of us, it's because we have a disconnect here. But if I'm truly walking with the king in community, that's the natural byproduct of what's going to come out of my life. And if that's the natural byproduct of what's coming out of my life, then it's going to impact every relationship that I have. So as we walk with God in the vertical, we walk out in community in the horizontal. Let's pray. God, thanks for, uh, for this morning. Thanks for um, being confrontational with hypocrisy. Um, thanks for, for giving us an opportunity to, to sit with the words that, that Mark had for us and, and see what this actually means in our lives. God, I, I pray that we see that you are the only thing in which we can place our hope um, because there is nothing else that we say will save us. And God, I pray that we see that there is power in your name and that we have power over sin and death only because of what you've done, but nothing that we could do ourselves. And God, I pray finally, as we walk in relationship with you, that we would see the byproduct of that relationship come out in our human relationships around us. That the way we walk with you would be seen by others and that the fruit of the Spirit would be a byproduct of our lives. Thanks for having victory over death. Thanks for conquering the grave. Thanks for the blood on the cross. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.